This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we're going to feature interviews that were collected, conducted by Ryan Fairfield and myself, Tony Lupo, for the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress. The um, focus of this podcast is not going to be on world leaders or events that led to World War II. It's not going to be about general strategy. It's going to be about the everyday GI soldiers and their experience. Welcome to our journey. All right. Welcome back to the Warrior Next Door podcast. I'm Ryan Fairfield. And I'm Tony Lupo. And this is episode three of four that you're about to hear. And the last previ- the previous two episodes, you heard about Mr. Senior's service, getting involved in the military, uh, his training, traveling over to England, and uh, billeting on his base over in England. Um, in this episode here, it's going to get, really get into the meat of his experiences in the skies over Nazi Germany during World War II. All right, so um, the next part here we're going to get into is Alan talking about what his duties were, aside from just being the waste gunner on the plane. What it was it exactly that he was charged with doing um, to help his plane's mission succeed? Primarily, my, my biggest job was, the most responsible job was arming the bombs, uh, which was the method of putting in arming wires attached to the bomb racks and taking out the cotter pins. At the end of the, in the tail fuse, they had a propeller. It was held in place by a cotter pin. So my job was to collect all the cotter pins so I could show the pilot afterwards that I had, the bombs are armed when they left the airplane. I don't know about you, but I don't know how comfortable I'd feel as a waste gunner. If those who can go Google this, if you look at the interior of B 24 and you're the waste gunner, you are literally standing next to the bomb rack. I just mentioned that there could be, you know, uh, a couple of dozen 250 pound bombs or two or three 2000 pound bombs. And your job is to make them live. And then you're standing there as a gunner and you're getting flack uh, shot at you, you're getting planes flat shot at you. I, I know it doesn't matter if those bombs go off, where you are on the plane, everyone's dying, but there's a, <laughs> there's a psychological element to having them right next to you. Right. I mean, you're firing a gun. Yeah. You're firing a 50 cal. And, and they're firing back at you. There's, there's bombs right next to you. Yes. <laughs> that you just pulled the cotter pins on, which would, you know, allow them to detonate if they're hit in a certain way. I don't know. I mean, it's the other thing about, uh, interviewing these World War II vets that I, I, I never took for granted, I never failed to get to marvel at, is how it, some of these things that would just freak us out today were just <laughs> right. nothing to them. Yeah, so my job was to, you know, arm these three 2,000-pound bombs while people were shooting at me and trying to kill me. And, La-di-da. Yeah, I mean, it was just amazing <laughs> to me. All right, uh, so what we're going to do here, um, we'll pick back up on, on his statements here about his duties and some of, the, uh, some of the issues he had to deal with. The weather was always bad, and this mission, it was bad. So I had, as we approached 10,000 feet, uh, we had to go on oxygen at 11. I was told to go ahead and arm the bombs, which I did. And I just got sat down in about 15 minutes, the pilot said, the mission is off, go put the counterpins back in. 
And by that time, we're passing towards 11,000 feet. It gets a little bit cold. A little bit cold. <laughs> yeah, a little bit cold. You know, I mean, I know what I've, uh, the few times in my life where I've climbed mountains and gotten up to 10,000 feet. Yeah, it's cold up there, you know, and, um, you know, these guys, he's talking about this still being wintertime, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it was even colder. Well, the good news is, is a B-24 had uh, a luxurious internal cabin. It was in, in, it had, it was pressurized. It was heated. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic and facetious. It would have been a cacophony of noise. In fact, some of these uh, 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 bomber crews would say as they got older and they couldn't hear that they had what they called four engineers, <laughs> meaning that their ears were what were uh, couldn't hear as well because of listening to those four-engine bombers drone on. So you would have been in a suit with electrical wires in it to keep you warm. And at a certain altitude above 10,000 feet, you had to wear oxygen. Most people did uh, because you couldn't think straight. Uh, some people could die. Um, if you got wounded at these elevations, some men survived the bullet hole wounds because the blood froze and prevented them from bleeding out. Yeah. And then once they got in lower altitudes, then they had to work to, to do the compression to keep them alive. That's how cold it got. If you took your gloves off and were to touch the, the outside, the, 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 the plane, the panel of the plane, you get frostbite in, in seconds. And the only thing between you and falling to your death or having the parachute out of the plane was this thin piece of aluminum there it wasn't like this double hull design it wasn't like modern aircraft where it's heated and air conditioned pressurized and pressurized right i mean it it, it would have been just the environment itself probably would have been as, as physically taxing because they had to do it for so long eight hour missions as the stress from the air attacks in the flak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. So we wanted to stop this here so that today's audience can better appreciate the conditions that these flyers were subjected to. You can't take the cotter pins out without, uh, with your gloves on. And you c- can't have an oxygen mask there. <clears throat> and I was one of those people who I required my oxygen before 11,000 feet. I felt better with that. So I, I put the cotter pins back in, took off the arming wires, and put the cotter pins back in, then went back to the waist and sat down. And in 10 minutes, I was told the mission's on again. Take the cotter pins out. Put the arming wires in. So, okay. This time it's close to 11,000 feet. And it's getting colder because this was still in the wintertime or springtime. So I did that, collected my cotter pins and sat out again. And it wasn't 10 minutes more and I was told, put the cotter pins back in. <laughs> and by that time, the cotter pins looked like uh, a snake. It was They were bent, out of shape. I couldn't get, get them in the holes of it was getting cold, and it's all, <clears throat> you had to be careful because it, desperation starts to take over, and you you couldn't let the crew down. I, I, I said, I've got to do this. And cotter pins kept dropping on the bomb bay, and then I'd have to move over, and I couldn't reach it with one hand, so I have to reach it, base myself with two, and that means propeller starts turning. So th- this is something that I think 
um, you, I've never had the insight into this sort of thing with, you know, with what these guys have to deal with, you know, obviously there's, there's, there are, they're looking at the weather, the weather's horrible. They're trying to figure out whether to scrub the mission or not. And I think that, uh, they must be talking amongst themselves. The pilots are all talking like, do we keep going? I don't know. Let's cancel it. Then no, nope, let's not cancel it. What are you talking about? We can't cancel this, you know? And so this guy here is the one bearing all these guys. This is going on in all the planes in the squadron right then in that flight. They're all doing the same thing. And they're all probably all cursing at their pilots right now. Like, come on, make up your mind. So the fact that this guy has to go put the pins in and out, in and out, in and out, dropping them. It's getting colder by the second. And in the meantime, you've got these propellers, not on the, we're not talking about the engine propellers. We're talking about the propellers on the tail fins of the bombs that are designed. Once they hit the airstream, when you drop them bombs away, those propellers are going to catch the wind and they're going to spin a certain number of revolutions and the bombs are freaking live. They are going to go off the next thing that hits them whether it's the ground or what, or a plane or who knows what. Um, so Alan's seeing, the, he's dropping these pins, and he's seeing these propellers start turning. While he's looking for the pins, he's got to reach down in the bomb bay. He's got his gloves off, and he's like, oh, my God. So to me, I mean, this is the seminal moment in Alan's 10 missions that he flew, I think, is this moment here. And the, the biggest adversarial issue he had was whether – and the indecision that had that was rightfully going on among his his group of bombers to figure out what the heck to do, and him catching the brunt of it here. Yeah, I <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine working in those conditions. And not only that, but if you if you don't get these cotter pins in the the tail of the bomb to, to stop the, the the propeller from spinning, and uh and then the the bomb goes uh, active if it's if it's ready to go, you can't land like that. Right. I mean, there's, right. there's so many accidents that occur with landing. There's anything that can be jarred and jostled. These planes were meant to be, to take off with bombs. They weren't meant to land with them. Which is why the, a lot of these guys, as they came back, they, they jettison them. They would jettison them yeah. out of the countryside. Totally. And, or over the channel. And any other issue, if you do that and you've got a bunch of bombs that are armed, is, you know, you don't want to inadvertently, you know, have it land somewhere where someone can get hurt. The bottom line is, is that these are little things that you won't hear about when you read books about the, the, the generals or Erwin Rommel or, or Roosevelt. These are just the day-to-day things that these guys had to struggle with that were important. And you think of the number of, uh, of uh, uh, soldiers who died through accidents and friendly fire and those sorts of things. This is one of those things. This is one of those things where if he doesn't take care of what he needs to take care of, he becomes one of those statistics, one of those people who crashed on landing. You wonder how they crashed on landing. How'd that happen? Well, I don't know what the bomb load was on this particular run, um, but some of these bomb runs had 24 250-pound bombs. So, mm-hmm. you know, just, that's another thing. It, it takes a lot of time to, to arm and disarm 6, these. 6,000 pounds of bombs. Absolutely. It's, it's incredible. So just by force of will, I was able to get those bent cotter pins for the third time back in the tail fuse. Well, anyone who's been, did a brake job or did mechanics work <laughs> knows what a cotter pin is, uh, knows what happens to a cotter pin when it gets bent. They're pretty worthless. And in fact, in my garage, I have a, a tin of extra cotter pins. When I use them once, they're gone. And here he is with this mangled 
uh, cotter pin trying to get it to work and all he wants is a pair of pliers. It was done and I went back and sat down and at that moment I would have given a, a week's or better yet a month's pay for a pair of three dollar Sears pliers to straighten those things up. So we proceeded to turn around and, by, and come back to base and we the worst part about it is we didn't get any mission credit for all that. <laughs> so we just had another nice long airplane ride. Just another nice long airplane ride. Man, that, what? Where you're freaking out and you're you've got you've got the the fate of your plane in your hands, you know, while what? you're dealing with this at this this sort of issue. And what a rip, right? For those for those that maybe we didn't touch on this earlier, at this point in the war you had to fly thirty missions before you could go home. And a lot of guys decided to continue on and do a couple tours. Uh Alan and his crew finished ten missions. And so when you look at these when you look at these numbers from these bomber crews who flew, you know, 30 missions, 40 missions, 50 missions, you got to wonder how many of these missions were in there. How many of these were where you, you wake up, you got those butterflies in your stomach, you don't know if you're coming back, you don't exactly know how the mission's going to go, you don't want to know what the weather's going to be like, and then you get in the plane, you fly over there, and then you turn around and you go back. And on one hand, you'd probably feel relief. It's like, well, I'm probably going to survive today. But on the other hand, you realize you didn't get credit for the mission, and you just got to do it all over again. It's it's torture. Mm-hmm. I mean, no wonder why so many guys suffered from PTSD. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine uh, having a job where likelihood of death was as high as theirs was, and then I don't know what the percentage would be that you turned around and came back and didn't get credit for any of it, even though all the emotions were there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it. They got ripped off. <laughs> We did uh, lose a target, I mean, lose a engine over a target. We came back on three engines. I think that was more due to engine malfunction than through enemy action. And we had to pull out and fly alongside of the bomber stream. When was the last time you've been on a commercial airline jet and you lost an engine? <laughs> or, or any plane and lost or an engine. Or any plane, exactly. And... I mean, I think we take for granted how safe flying is these days. I don't think these guys had that. <laughs> I think that when they went in these bombers and they saw them blow up at takeoff or landing or in the air or have mechanical failures and they had to parachute out, it's amazing what the human brain can get accustomed to. And for him to lose an engine, and it was important for him to say mechanical failure. That's his way right. of saying, well, it didn't get shot. It just kind of broke. It's not a big deal, right? <laughs> And, and, you know, if you were to take uh, someone today, contemporary, and put them in this rickety old bomber and have an engine go out, they'd be screaming like, they'd be jumped. I don't know what they would do. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I know what I'd be doing. I'd be piddling. So I That's don't right. know. On our way back, it was uneventful. The fighters came over and let us, let us know that they were watching us and taking care of us. So that's interesting. Um, you know, he just talks about how the fighter escorts, you know, came alongside of him and his plane. Like he said, they had to pull out of the bomber stream because they had lost an engine. So they were traveling slower than the rest of them. They were this, this, you know, earlier in the war, that would have been a death sentence for, for a bomber, um, to have any sort of mechanical malfunction if you're over the target or on your way to or on your way back. 
because the German, you know, the war effort, the, the fighter pilots were, were on those planes that were the stragglers, you know, much like, you know, a pack of coyotes is on a wounded animal. Um, that's exactly what this is here. So, um, you know, th- we had the ability at this time to, to protect um, as much as possible, as much as could be protected, these wounded animals, basically, which were our, our guys in the bombers. Well, then another time we had a bomb rack uh, for some cluster bombs hit our wing and it was embedded in the wing right after Just bombs embedded away. in the so wing. I know. <laughs> it caused a little drag, but didn't fortunately <laughs> hit an engine, so we were all right there. We didn't have to fall out of formation there. So let's... <laughs> okay, let, let, let's unpack this a little bit. So this was this was part of our opening clip. Uh, this was our opening clip. And what, what blows me away about this is that um, is how frequently this happens. So in this case, let me add some color to this. His formation is flying under another formation. And you're not supposed to drop bombs or pieces of your bomber on underlying formation. That's never good. No, that's generally frowned upon. Okay. <laughs> uh, in this case, somehow, some way, maybe through damage, maybe through flak, maybe something caused it to loosen up. A bomb rack, which is no small piece of equipment, falls from an overlying flight and crashes into their plane. Now, it could have went in the cockpit. That would have been bad. I don't think they have a spare one of those on a plane, <laughs> right? You go into a cockpit, all the controls are blown out, and you're kind of done. And it sticks in the wing. Again, right, I, I, I try to take the contemporary viewer's thought about putting them back in time and having them sit in his waist gunner position. It's loud. It's cold. There's, there's bombs next to you. Next thing you know, you hear this big noise, and you look, and there's a chunk of bomb rack sticking out of your wing and the only comment he makes on it is it caused a little bit of drag yeah and so what what goes through my head when i hear him talk about this is like okay the bomb rack hit our plane where did the bombs go exactly did the bombs just miss our plane right then and oh by the way we have interviewed people um who have had well we've interviewed one individual who had this happen to them where bombs went through their bomber formation and in doing research for that particular interview, it turns out that the internet is replete with stories of overflights of bombers and their bombs crashing through because they, they crossed at the wrong time or whatever happened, some sort of snafu, and these bombs would crash through underlying formations. Again, let's go back to the idea of for every 30 missions flown, how many missions, how many people died from from friendly fire, from accidents, from things that will never be recorded because these individuals passed away. And ironically, through these, it's not like some some predatory fighter came in and blew them out of the sky, which a lot of people think. A significant amount of uh, number of men died and and equipment crashed in just mechanical failures and things like this. Looking at uh, the other airplanes and seeing the flag that some of them had to go through, it was really... We really were fortunate. I just have a couple of quick comments after this section. This is later in the war, right? We're talking probably March, April, 1945. Alan mentions that fighters weren't as much of a problem. We had air supremacy at this point, but that flak was still an issue. A couple of comments. One thing is when, when a plane gets hit by flak, what, we, what we've been told 
by people who fought in this theater is it's not like the movies where, you know, an engine smokes and they just kind of turn around and go back. That can happen, right? But what we've been told is what happens more often than not is a flak burst hits a bomber and the bomber disintegrates. It mm-hmm. just blows up. It, one minute you're you you're looking the gas over, tank or the bombs yeah, or it, totally, especially if you're by IP and all the bombs are armed. That um, that if the movies really wanted to capture what happens when flak hits a bomber formation, you're basically looking at a bunch of bombers blowing up into dust and shreds of aluminum. And so that's a real frightful thing. There's none of this. It wasn't this gradual thing where you just got, you know, death by a thousand cuts and you could drop your bombs and limp in. That was for the movies. Often what happened is one minute your your friend on part of your box formation was there and the next minute they were just gone. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I want to add is when fighters were more prevalent earlier in the war, uh, 42, 43, and early part of 44, that's what they feared the most. And we have had... Uh, bomber crews that we've interviewed tell us that they would fly into flak to get away from the fighters. Kind of like how uh, you'll have guys uh, in Vietnam or even in World War II that would call in artillery on their position because they're about to get overrun. Yeah, and they would take their chances with artillery rather than, yeah. you know, than than risk being overrun by the enemy. Totally. So I just want to stop and share that with you that there's that. that there are just, there's a lot of things that happen in the war, and pretty much all of them are bad. I remember seeing a battery of four uh, anti-aircraft guns tracking a B-20, B-17 group, I believe it was, about uh, maybe a half to three-quarters of a mile flying alongside of us. And the, the last plane in the formation there, this burst of four fired would be a little closer each time and a little closer each time. And then we turned for our initial point to make our bomb run. So I never did learn to see what the what happened. It, it didn't look good because you could there was the flak was very heavy. More so, there's more of a danger than fighters were at that time because of. The Luftwaffe was beaten. One of the things that is going on in my mind's eye whenever he's explaining this, he's looking out the side of his of his uh, of his window there, looking at the planes flying alongside. He's got a vantage point that few people have, and he can see as these bursts of flak are coming along, that one of them's catching up to the plane that he is watching, um, and. How terrifying would that be to realize that, uh, well, if that's happening there, what's going on behind me right now? Is there a burst of flak slowly catching up with me? And unfortunately, we don't know what happened there. Like he mentions, he didn't get to see what actually the outcome was. Did they, did they outrun the flak and, and, or did they get hit? Um, but these are the, these are the things that they had to deal with, you know, I mean, Every time you'd see bomb damage from flak, if it didn't blow up, it looked like it, it looked like someone just, uh, I mean, perforated the fuselage with with steel, with with BBs or something, you know. And they describe the flak hitting so close, it would sound like someone throwing a handful of gravel against a trash can. Um, and 
and you a lot of times you see the daylight shining through the fuselage and you wonder how did these guys some of these guys come out of planes unscathed some of them you know are severely wounded but it's amazing uh you know that that they any of these guys survived you know a lot of these guys are carrying flak around in their bodies today yeah and it it also goes to a lot of veterans tell us about how much of a role just luck played that there were, as they would describe it, soldiers, formations, groups, units that were better than them, more experienced than them, more capable than them, that died um, in, in battle in various ways that they can't explain. And uh, this is an example of that. I mean, we don't know what happened to that bomber, but if it got hit and didn't make it back, it was just, you know, and, and I think that was um, in conflict with some of the views we've heard from some of the veterans, which was, they felt like at certain times there was a, an element of divine intervention that a certain thing had to have happened for them to to survive that. I don't have an opinion on that one way or the other. I just know that when you're in an environment, I don't know, but I've I hear these guys talk about when you're in an environment like that, your brain tries to figure out what it all means, and I don't think it can. Yeah. All right. So you just heard uh, the the third installment of a four part series on Alan Senior, a B twenty four waste gunner in European theater of operations. You just heard some heroin experiences with his time in combat over Nazi Germany in the waning days of World War II. And now what we want to talk about in the next episode, our final installment in this four-part series, is how these uh, soldiers adjusted to civilian life. So please join us for the last of the four-part series on this particular podcast on the Warrior Next Door podcast. I'm Tony Lupo. Well, thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, please like us at the Warrior Next Door podcast Facebook page. Feel free to post your questions and we'll try to answer them in the next series of interviews that we do. All of our interviews are archived at the Veterans History Project Library of Congress and also with our partner at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.